0: Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crime and I am your host Frank Zaffero and this is our feature episode for the month of October 2019 and it will feature Katrina McPherson. Katrina is a Scottish author, and uh, our second Scott in a row as we talked to Owen Mullen last week. So if you are into Gaelic accents, then this is the podcast for you this month. We're going to talk to Katrina, who is pretty hilarious and uh, writes a couple of different styles, uh, two different series that are in very different uh, styles of of, uh, storytelling, and I'm looking forward to talking to her about both of them. But before we get to Katrina, I do want to tell you that Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. And from Down and Out Books, we are going to hear this month from Lance Wright all about the newest publications coming out from Down and Out Books. Here's Lance.
1: Hey, Frank. This is Lance from Down and Out Books. The theme for this month seems to be anthologies, as we have four terrific collections of stories coming out. First up, The Eyes of Texas, Private Eyes from the Panhandle to the Piney Woods, edited by Michael Bracken. Then we have Paque to Las Cepas, stories to benefit the people of Puerto Rico following the devastating hurricanes that have hit this U.S. territory over the past couple of years, edited by Angel Louise Cologne. Editor Brian Thornton brings us a beast without a name, his second collection of crime stories inspired by the music of Steely Dan. And finally, we're honored to have been selected to publish the official anthology celebrating 50 years of Bouchercon: Denim, Diamonds, and Death, edited by Rick Allerman. Learn more about these books and all of our other new titles at downandoutbooks.com. Thanks for having me, Frank, and I look forward to introducing readers to more of our new titles next month.
0: Well, thanks, Lance. There are, folks, several different anthologies to sink your teeth into, depending on what your interests are. Uh, Down Out Books is a great publisher, and uh, I'm uh, proud to be one of their authors and and that they sponsor uh, this podcast. So speaking of this podcast, our feature guest this episode, Katrina McPherson, is ready and waiting, so let's get to her. Well, hello,
2: Katrina, and welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thank you for having me.
0: We had a little bit of a glitch when we were getting uh, uh, together for this uh, on the scheduling. I had to change the schedule, and I think that threw threw things off, but there was a bit of a... uh, humorous exchange when that occurred uh, regarding uh, <laughs> regarding perception of technology i don't know if you wanted to share that or not
2: oh absolutely cuz it just it made me laugh out loud and i think it made you laugh too so i i i missed yesterday's date and I explained why in that I've got a diary that starts with Monday and has Saturday and Sunday together at the end. And it looks wrong because diaries usually start with Sunday. So all year, where are we? We're in October now. I've been a day late for things because what's what's Thursday looks like Friday to me. And so your your response, Frank, was, wow, I can't believe that program doesn't have a setting where you can change that. Um And in response to that email, I sent a picture of my spiral bound Royal National Lifeboat Association 2019 diary with the paper clips in it and said, yeah, this this program doesn't have a doesn't have a setting where you can change that. I am so old school as I write on my hand. It happened at the weekend. I was down in Phoenix teaching a class and I wrote something on my hand to help me remember And someone was determined to show me how you can make a note on your phone. I said, no, 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 I I need it on my hand. It has to be in ink and Sharpie on my body so that I don't forget. (laughs) In fact, I broke my arm a few years ago and I thought I was scattered. And, you know, I wasn't quite on all cylinders because one of my arms was in plaster and I was on Vicodin. But I think what it was was I couldn't write on that hand. I couldn't remember anything because my hand wasn't available to write on <laughs> but I did a radio show once there's a, there's a local radio show here in town and the um, the first time I went there uh, the host sort of gave me a kind smile and I thought I wonder what that's about and he, after we'd finished the interview he said do you know you've got radio 5pm written in sharpie on your hand so it's just as well you weren't trying to be sophisticated Ah. <laughs> uh, Who needs dignity? It's overrated. Uh, (laughs) Dignity is overrated. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh,
0: Well, as anyone can tell listening to you, you are from Scotland. uh, Mm -hmm. And yet uh, you've lived in California for a while now. And I'm kind of always curious when uh, somebody has lived uh, for an extended period of time in two different cultures, uh, you know what? What are some of the differences that you've noticed, and what are some of the similarities? What any interesting experiences based on the fact that you're <laughs> you know, born of two different cultures?
2: I knew I knew most of the um, the you know the canonical language differences uh, when I first moved here. So I didn't get into too many scrapes that way. It's mostly visitors when I have house guests and they don't understand. then that's when they, my my sister once called out across a thrift store you think it's disgusting to buy second-hand rubbers. And everyone, <laughs> everyone in there is like a strong yes. A, a world of yes. Uh, she means, we mean running shoes. That's what we call uh, tennis shoes. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I would have so, I mean, it was still like a yes. Or still cold, like. yes. It probably was disgusting to buy second-hand tennis shoes, but, you know, not as bad. Um,
0: Clearly not.
2: Yeah. It's, the one that really got me was most things I knew they were going to be different. I mean, in, in, you know, in in Scotland, everybody's hammered all the time and nobody ever goes to church. You know, we're a nation of godless pinkles And I knew that that would be different. But the one thing that did get me and the, the, the notion of an inside cat, that was something I hadn't come across before. That some people have got cats that don't go outside. That was bizarre. But, you know, I got I got used to it. And it's just a, it's just a cultural difference. I'll never be able to get my head around it. It's like it's like you're, it's like you're saying I didn't kidnap her. She's just an inside girlfriend. It's like you can't do that. That's so <laughs> weird. Um, I didn't know that there was a really strict protocol about how you leave a party because you don't your own culture is invisible to you until mm-hmm. you see a different culture. And so the first party that Neil and I had when we moved here to California, um, we everything was fine and we were chit-chatting away and everything was all right. It was maybe about 12 people. It was a dinner party. It wasn't a big, you know, bash. And then all of a sudden, someone stood up and everyone stood up and everyone left. And we were standing on the step waving goodbye. And then once the last car had gone, we both turned to each other and went, what happened? What did you do? What went wrong? What's I don't understand. And that's how we found out that in America, or at least in California, when someone leaves, that's the party breaking up and everyone leaves. Whereas I worked out in Britain, Hmm. when someone leaves, then nobody gets to leave. You can't leave within 10 minutes because it's rude. You can't stay (laughs) longer than 20 minutes because that's rude. So when someone leaves, then 11 to 19 minutes later, someone else leaves. And then 11 to 19 minutes later after then, someone else leaves. And so it goes. And that's how you leave a party in in Scotland. And I had no idea of that until someone broke it. It takes forever for everyone to clear out. And now I love it because your house, you have 20 people in your house but by half past 10, you are in your jammies doing the dishes and they've all gone. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> it's more efficient. Yeah.
2: But yeah, we're used to it now. I can navigate it now.
0: Before you came here to uh, the US, uh, when you were in Scotland, I read that you were an academic linguist. Do I have that right? Yeah. yeah what does that right. mean exactly?
2: Uh, I, did a, I did a PhD in linguistics. So a PhD in um, semantics, like formal meaning theory. And I did, a, I did a thesis that can always win a round of who did the most useless PhD. i never <laughs> lost a round of that. What um, was the thesis? Oh, here we go. You ready for this? I'm it ready. It a, a possible world's philosophical model of the interpretation of references to non-existent objects.
0: Wow. Mind blown. Yeah, right. you, have to, you have to think about that every second word just to stick. Yeah.
2: With, Handy. With eh?
0: <laughs> a lot of real world application there. Well,
2: no, I did. I wrote a novel sort of based on it, though it did. I mean, it was a lot of fun. My it, what you would call major professor, I would say my, my supervisor said at the end that no one had ever written anything closer to a science fiction novel and yet got a linguistics PhD out of it. (laughs) So it was a lot of fun. I worked for five years as a linguistics lecturer, um, and I think the main, the good thing that I got out of that was realising that it was wrong. I was really unhappy. I was completely rubbish at it. And so when I started writing, I, I could tell that this was me in, you know, that I was a square peg in a square hole now. And I think even... So what is this 19 years later? I'm still not as troubled by the difficulties of writing as some of my friends are. And I feel for them. But when you've been in the wrong job and you trained for nine years to do it and you know within months that it's hopeless, then it you know it really helps when it comes to having to sit down and write or, you know, do page proofs or do the worst thing of all, which is emailing. Big, important writers asking if they'll blurb your book. I hate that. <laughs> but I still don't hate it as much as being a linguistics lecturer. What didn't you like about it? Uh, well, I, I like the subject and I love the students, um, but I couldn't do the college politics. Uh-huh. I couldn't do the, the you know, the, 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 the fights are so bitter because the stakes are so low kind of thing. <laughs> I just couldn't. <laughs> I felt utterly bewildered by it most of the time. I didn't understand what was going on.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably pretty happy that you switched over uh, to writing (laughs) crime fiction. That's Um, very
2: kind. None happier than me, but that's very kind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am being kind, I guess, but I, I think I'm being factual. Uh, when you look at your curriculum vitae here, I mean, the the Lexi Campbell book, the second one, the Scott Free, that won the Seamus in twenty nineteen, and you had a standalone that won the twenty fifteen Anthony, The Day oh, She Died, right?
2: The Day She Died, yeah,
0: that's right. It was also finalist for the Edgar the year before that
2: that that, that, oh. that year, I think. It would yeah. have, to have been I've the sat same. three year. times in that room at the Edgars, me and my editor and my agent all sitting there, all dressed up, three times in a row. Oi, never mind. It's an honor (laughs) to be nominated. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. You were nominated and you won the 2014 Anthony for As She Left It. We had such trouble with that book As She Left It. I wrote it and we couldn't find a UK publisher for it. Couldn't give it away. We just couldn't find anyone. It was so different to the historical stuff. And it just, we couldn't find a publisher for it. And then Terry Bischoff is at Malice, domestic actually, Terry Bischoff, Late of Midnight Inc., um. I was moaning on about not being able to get my book published. I didn't know who she was. And she slid her business card across the table and said, send it to me. And I said, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, I didn't say that, but I thought it, you know. And then she went for a wee, maybe 10, 15 minutes later, and everyone else at the table immediately went, oh, my God, she never does that. This is not nothing. Take it seriously. She never hands her business card out. She's only got five. (laughs) And so she bought it and it was edited and she picked a fantastic title for it and she put a beautiful jacket on it and they got behind it. And it did tremendously well. And then all the publishers who'd had it past their desk and say, nah, got that kind of, oh, know, you know how they do. We could have had that book. And that really annoys me because it wasn't a book. It was a file. It was a word file. Midnight Inc. made it a book, you know. Mm -hmm. They made it a polished, well presented book.
0: You know, I've seen you in action at the panels and everything, and you do have a fabulous sense of humor. And I, I do think that probably has a lot to do with it as well. I mean, you know, people like somebody who makes them laugh.
2: I th- yeah, I think you're right. And I think, I mean, I think I'm a typical youngest child in a big family. You know, we tend <laughs> to be the mouthy ones. And I think it's quite lucky because it's quite a, an unusual combination of. Um, characteristics that someone's happy to sit all alone in a room writing for Mm -hmm. 90% of the time and Mm -hmm. is fine with that. And then for 10% of the time is quite happy to stand up in front of 600 people Mm -hmm. and crack jokes.
0: I noticed on your website there that they've already announced uh, 2021 Left Coast Crime, which is in Albuquerque of all places, uh, that you are a guest of honour.
2: I'm the American guest of honour. It's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Local and cheap. That's what that is. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I've been the Toastmaster and I'm going to be the Toastmaster at BoucherCon in 2020. So I know what Toastmaster means. A guest of honour, guest of honour. I'm not entirely sure what it entails. You do an interview, I think, and um, you maybe do a couple of panels and... There must be more to it than that. I know that you're visible. When I was a guest of honour at something, what was it, California Crime Writers Conference, I don't know if this is going to amaze you, Frank, but it amazed me. My hotel room had two bathrooms. What? That's what it means to be a guest of honour. There were (laughs) two bathrooms (laughs) in my hotel room. Wow.
0: Wow. Uh, We'll get back to our conversation with Katrina McPherson in just a few moments, but this is the part of the show where we consult the experts, and by experts, I mean book readers, other writers, bookstore owners, uh, bookstore employees, editors, reviewers, all of the people in the world who you should be listening to when it comes to uh, what might be worth reading. And so this episode, uh, we're going to hear from last week's guest, Owen Mullen, and prolific author, Vincent Zandry. Take it away, gents.
3: Hi, everybody. This is Owen Mullen. I'd like to recommend any book by James Lee Burke. He's one of my favorites. Um, his very first one's a good start. Neon Rain written a long time ago, and he followed it out with a host of terrific stuff. James Lee Buck, great stuff. All right, this is Vincent Zandry, New York Times, USA, best-selling, thriller-award-winning author of Moonlight Weeps, and I'd like to recommend a book for you guys. It's Charlie Houston's Caught Stealing. In fact, uh, I recommend... uh, Um, The entire Hank Thompson trilogy, uh, I think it's some of the best noir being crafted today, or in the past 10 years anyway. Charlie Houston, I think, is uh, an absolute genius at what he does. And I think uh, if you really appreciate noir literature and hard-boiled literature, you'll just love these books. I reread them.
0: Well, there's a couple of good books for you to try out. Uh I'd like to recommend one too. Currently reading Charles Salzburg's Swan's Last Song and enjoying it quite a bit. Very interesting style that Charles writes with. And so uh I can I can recommend it for sure. Swan is an interesting character, being that he's sort of a low level. Skip Tracer, and and now he's caught up in a a little bit more of a high-level case, and uh, how he approaches it and his attitude and how he sees the world is all pretty interesting. This is a Down and Out Books publication, and the interesting part about it is that there is a new ending, and then they've included the original ending. At the end of the book as well. And so I learned about this from Dana King, and uh, I'm excited to read both versions of the ending and kind of see which one I prefer and and to understand uh, the thought process behind the change. Anyway, Charles Salzberg, Swan's Last Song. And now let's get back to our conversation with Katrina McPherson. Moving into your books, I noticed an interesting dichotomy, though, as I was doing my my due diligence. And that is your series books tend to be humorous. Uh, They tend to not necessarily be cozy, but be more toward that end of the spectrum or the golden age sort of emulation. And your standalones all seem to be very dark, psychological, thriller works. Is that purposeful? Did you do that on purpose?
2: I don't think so. I think... The first of the historical series that I wrote, I wrote as a palate cleanser and a confidence booster after my first novel had finally gone in a drawer after it had been rejected 40 times. I got to 40 and then thought, I'm just giving up on this. And so Neil and I were sitting on a beach in Scotland, freezing cold. So he said, you just need to do something for fun and don't think about it being sold. What do you love? Like, what do you wish there was more of? And I'd always been a big fan of Dorothy L. Sayers and Marjorie Allen and Michael Innes and Agatha Christie and so I thought oh I, you know and they're all dead so I'll try and write one of those that'd be a laugh but it was for it was to entertain myself and as a just as a confidence booster so that was a very specific decision and then I wrote as she left it when a story occurred to me that just wouldn't work in the 20s and it wasn't about the sort of person that, that would turn up in one of those novels and those those books are much more like me. They're about working class, blue collar women, usually, and men. I mean, I'm luckier in my life than those people. I've never had a, an experience that would make a good psychological thriller, thank God. But in terms of the, the background and the, the milieu of those books is much more my background and my real life whereas the Dandy Gilbert historical novel is is almost like fan fiction, but it's fandom of a publishing tradition, the golden Mm -hmm. age. Mm -hmm. The historical ones are probably not as light as the covers make them look, and the the standalone thrillers are not quite as dark as the covers make them look. There are always laughs. There's Mm -hmm. always, and sometimes I need to dial it down a bit, but there are always some jokes, sometimes quite dark.
0: I think it would be impossible for Scott to write a story and have there not be some humor involved.
2: I think so. I think Uh, they're not. I mean, they're they're just I don't I couldn't do solemnity. Do you think we admire
0: the writers who or the stories that are stories we wish we could write that just aren't in our wheelhouse? Do you think there's an additional Uh, boost of admiration that comes out of that?
2: I think, there, I think there is a boost of admiration, but I also think there's respite from, you know, like if you read something that's quite like what you do, but a bit better or <laughs> similar to what you do, but oh God, I wish I'd thought of it. Then you're reading half as a reader and half as an embittered writer. you know. <laughs> but when you read something that you just couldn't do in a million years, then you get to relax and switch off being a writer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just be a reader again. Yeah,
0: Well, these Dandy Gilver books, they, they started in the 1920s and go into yeah. the 30s, right? Yeah, they uh, start in
2: 1922, and I'm up to mm-hmm. 1937 now.
0: Yeah, there's 13 of them, right?
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. And 14's just about to come out, and 15's finished. So you know how you're always ahead. Mm-hmm. But 13 mm-hmm. of them are out, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're up to 1937.
2: But I'll Scott- tell you something, writing about 1937 mm-hmm. is not a lot of fun.
0: I wouldn't imagine so no. in the UK particularly.
2: Mm-mm. No, it's. Um, I mean, this, and the Golden Age writers of the time. I mean, they were beginning to feel the drumbeat in their feet of what was coming, but they didn't know it was coming. Mm-hmm. Whereas I know what's coming in 1939, and it's right. it casting quite a shadow over the books. And so, how does that? Uh, how does that play in? When you're when you're writing the stories,
0: because you know, as you said, they're not super light, but uh, yeah. you're not writing noir either for, in this series.
2: Well, I've given I've given the two the couple. My my detective it has a co detective who's a young man, not her husband, but she also has a husband, and I've given Dandy and her husband Hugh opposite beliefs or maybe hopes about what's going to happen. That Hugh mm-hmm. has believed. He reads the newspapers and he pays attention, and he's believed for quite a few years, that there's more trouble coming in from exactly the same source. And Dandy doesn't believe him, thinks he's scaremongering and can't believe him because they've got two sons of fighting age. And so in every book, there's some of that. And in every book, there's something, you know, just as a reminder uh, that something's something's coming, something about Mm -hmm. foreign travel maybe not being such a good idea. At first I said... I'm going to close the series because I don't want to write about the Second World War. I don't really want to. Um, And I've changed my mind about that as it gets closer. (laughs) I've decided I I do want to. There's a lot of material out there and I can educate myself in time. But there's a story in my own family. My grandfather was a uh, sergeant major with the Royal Scots Fusiliers and he was captured very early in the war, 1939. And he was in a stalag, stalag 387 for six years. And they were uh, non-compliant, so they refused to work for the Nazis. And so they were on non-compliance rations, so they were basically on starvation rations for, for the six years. And some one of the people who was there in one of the huts wrote a book about it called Barbed Wire, uh, which is published about that very Stalag. Um, and I've got a painting of them that was done on a sack pillowcase while he was in there, which is haunting. It's extremely sad. But it's it's given me one story of the war that I feel as if I know about. And,
0: uh, I want to move real quickly to your other series, which uh, I guess once you have two, it's considered a series, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And that and that is your Lexi Campbell series, which first book in that series, uh, Scott Free," won the Lefty Award. That would have been then at the LCC up in Vancouver, just this in
2: Vancouver. Last time. That's right, yeah.
0: I was at that conference. That's uh, It was uh, fun. Tell me about Lexi.
2: Oh, yes. Well, she's. This was a. Se- it was going to be a trilogy, but I've just signed a contract for books three and four. Eh, what are you going to do, right? This was a, a series that I was asked for. The, the editor said, We want something. We want something else from you. It's had a long, tortured path since then. But at that moment, I was already writing two books a year, and my editor said, We want another series from you and I thought I might just explode but then I thought there are so many people trying to break in if I say no to this I'll get punched in the neck by a close personal (laughs) friend so I said yes and I thought right I'm going to write people are always saying you there's humor in your books there are jokes in your books and you're funny I'm going to write a comic I'm going to try and write a comic nail my colors to the mast and say this is a funny book which is absolutely terrifying because if you've got a book Mm -hmm. with a few jokes And someone doesn't Mm -hmm. laugh. It doesn't matter. But if you say this is a funny book, look at this bright yellow cover with sunglasses on and people don't laugh, then you're in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it was I started after mm, I think I'd been in California, maybe seven or eight years. And I thought, right, I'm ready to write about this place now. It took that long. But I, I still can't write an American novel. So it's a Scottish protagonist. It's a Scottish woman who moves to a college town in Northern California. So it's lightly, mm. fici- lightly fictionalised. Mm. She's not she's not really me. She's a marriage guidance counsellor purely because I thought it would be hilarious for a Scot, the sort of, there's more to life than happiness, oh well, we'll soon be dead, Scot <laughs> to be a marriage and family therapist in California where people are so much more evolved psychologically <laughs> and got... Wider horizons and much higher hopes about personal happiness. It just tickled me how that would work. So she is, and it, so the series is called the Last Ditch series because she lives in some place called the Last Ditch Motel, named after the Last Ditch Slough that runs along the back full of mosquitoes. Um, <laughs> and the idea of putting her in a motel, she's got no money, so it was the only place she could afford to live. The idea of putting her in a motel was that the, the transients would mean that there was fodder for a story, you know, mm-hmm. for every book. Mm-hmm. But then I completely fell in love with some of these people who were supposed to be transients. And so I made two of them the owners of the motel and attached laundromat. And I made two of them permanent residents of the motel. In fact, four of them are permanent residents of the motel. So I broke my own rules. So it's not a motel. It's it's an apartment yeah, I complex. Know. <laughs> so, there's, so there's there's the, the owners and they don't live in the owner's apartment because the owner's wife is a germaphobe. So they live in a hotel room and she cleans the apartment. And the other two people who live there permanently are two doctors who own a house in town. Um, But one of the doctors, he's an anesthesiologist. He's got kleptoparasitosis which I'll explain what that is. Parasitosis means when you think that there are bugs living on you. It's a a, um, a psychiatric disorder. You think there are bugs living on you and kleptoparasitosis is where you think there are bugs everywhere. And so he lives in a room in the last ditch motel because the germaphobe owner gets industrial insecticide from her cousin in Costa Rica that's completely illegal in California. But it's the only place in town that's clean enough for this guy to be able to relax. So wow. this is what I put my this is what I put the characters through so I can keep them in the motel. And then there's a pair of there there is a, a a single mother and her child who live in the in the motel for the more normal reason that she's undocumented and that's where she lives, uh, which is the much more normal reason for people to live permanently in a motel. That she's a great character. I, I love her. I I'm, I'm determined to get her life to work out somehow. But at the moment she's just a um she's a very trenchant commentator on what goes on. Well, would it
0: be safe to say that while she isn't you, she is an alter ego in the sense that you can always ask, well what would I do in this situation? Oh, because that's probably yeah. what she
2: would do. She's absolutely me. She's completely <laughs> me. And if I if I pretended otherwise, I would just get laughed out of town because my friends when I send them the book, they say it, it's just like you are sitting in my kitchen telling a story. <laughs> She's, she. I mean, none of the facts of her life are. No, I know I understand, but but her, her, but her, her take character. on life is absolutely mm-hmm. mine. Yeah, her. Mm-hmm. Some of some of her some of her views of America, are mine, mm. absolutely, mm-hmm. like how the mailboxes should be red because blue mailboxes are invisible, in the shade. Hmm. And how the problem with American divorce rates is the open plan houses because you can't get away from each other. <laughs> but I truly believe that. <laughs> These houses from from house hunting, when we first moved here, there are no walls. You walk into a house, that's it. You're in the front door and that's it. Where do you put your pictures? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: you said you signed up for two more books. Uh, there yep. are two of them out now. Um, yeah, those are the the humorous novels. uh But I mentioned earlier that a lot of your standalones are a little bit more on the serious side. And you've got a new one coming out here
2: in October. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, that strangers, strangers at the is
0: State. the gate. Yeah. yeah, tell me about that.
2: Well, it is. It's dark. It's literally dark. These are people who live in a. a who are from the city to a small cottage in a very steep-sided valley that gets no sunshine in the winter. And there are lots of places like that in Scotland. Um, and it's one of these, this seems too good to be true premises. Um, they get, a, a young man gets a partnership in a law firm. His wife, Finney, gets a full-time job as a church deacon. She's not me. Oh my God, is she ever not me. I couldn't be a church deacon. Um, and they get a free picturesque cottage at a gate lodge cottage from colleagues and life feels too good to be true and within a day and a half they find out that yes it is and um, they stumble over a, a murder and and just as one of them is going to dial 999 the other one says no 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 you can't you can't do that I have to stop you there's something in my past that can't survive a scandal and the other Member of the marriage says, "Well, yeah, there's a funny thing because there's I haven't been honest with you either. There's something in my past that <laughs> wants to drive a scandal, and so they walk away. So the my the strap line, the the thing that it came to me at first is for the for the best possible reason they make the worst decision of their lives, uh-huh. and having walked away, they're they're on a the top of a slope that they they can't get off of. So I make up these people that I love." And then I rip them to absolute shreds
0: (laughs) and see what happens. That's the writer's job right there. Yeah. You just described it in a very pithy way. Um, You obviously made your phone calls too, uh, at least a few authors there the there's a blurb on the cover I'm looking at from Anne Cleves
2: yeah uh, yeah that's, feast... nice. that's my my least favorite job but I did it again <laughs> a feast yeah.
0: of a novel punchy and disturbing yeah. um but I'm looking at the cover here and it is a dark cover it's got a, a you know a silhouette of I, it looks like a female form to me, uh, but, you know, it's a little <laughs> indistinct. In the woods, it's dark and foggy and,
2: you know, strangers at the gate. It's ominous. It is, is that, but it, the reason I'm laughing is, I, you know how we don't really know what these books are called? We sort of know, but I, I sometimes call them um, psychological domestic noir suspense thrillers. Just use mm-hmm. all the words and then you know what mm-hmm. we're talking about. You know, these, <laughs> we don't really know what they're right. called. Well, I've got a name for them. Do you want to hear my name for them? I do. Where's she off to now? That's what I call them. <laughs> Where's she off to now? Because there's always a woman on the jacket who's walking away. <laughs> so that I want to get that started. It's like she doesn't have that red coat on anymore that she had for a few years, but she's still off somewhere. Where's she off to now? That's what I call, that's what I call them. And I'm not, being, I'm not disparaging them because I write them mm-hmm. and I read them and I love mm-hmm. them, um, but nobody quite knows um, what to call them. I mean, a cosy... You know what it is, and you know right. what it's called. It's called a cozy. We know what noir is. We don't quite know what these books are called. Domestic mm-hmm. noir, maybe they're called. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm making a bid for, where's she off to now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned that
0: one of your least favorite sayings is love hurts, and uh, you had an interesting take on that.
2: That's right, yeah, and I love Hurts. I think if you can get someone to swallow that, then you're in a position of power that's not going to end well for anyone.
0: It seems to tie in pretty well to this, this subgenre that you're
1: working on.
2: I suppose so, yes, I suppose so, because are, are quite a few of these books, and I think there's eight now, are about a, a woman learning that love does not hurt. That, that The problem is that wasn't love.
0: You don't write happy relationships, but you've been married for quite a long time.
2: Yeah, for one hundred and fifty years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think. I think you. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because you explore. Because none of us. I don't know if people who are criminals write crime. I, I think maybe you, you can explore things if you know that it's not going to jump up and bite you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's a. It's a. There's no. I think what my husband says is that I, I overreact semi-professionally and <laughs> I, I overreact in advance because it saves time later. So the fact that I have been married for, God, we've been together what, 34 years um, and nothing much has befallen me that hasn't stopped me from thinking, oh my God, but what if the, oh, but what oh but what if, but what if, but what if you know, because I, I just don't think that people like you and me frank are kind of bovine contented placid people We, <laughs> because we couldn't write what we write we couldn't we couldn't right. do it
0: right yeah you know? yeah it's an exploration of something maybe that is very different than what you've experienced or a very different outcome to things that you've experienced yeah, exactly you know, uh, so yeah exactly for sure
2: um, I think, what what my husband says now, because it did drive him a bit nuts for a while, uh, just me being me, but he says now that that, that the overreaction in advance, you know, the from not to a hundred, it comes from the same place as the stories come from, so you can't have yeah. one without the other, which yeah. I think is, you know, a good take on it, you yeah. know, and that's what he says now. I mean, he still rolls his eyes, jeez. <laughs> that's
0: that's his spousal duty
2: (laughs) yeah especially when i go through something called what he calls the big early wobble when i come blattering out of my study about a third of the way through a book and say allegedly say every time i I can't do this i don't know what this is about actually it's not about anything these are not real people there's no color that's thin there's no story I, i can't do this i i just have to stop and apparently I say that every single time and I've written 25 novels now. <laughs> Does
0: he have a way of responding to that uh, that generally uh, yeah, works? He,
2: read, just read me the start of it. Just when he comes into my study or, you know, at some point he'll say, just read me the beginning and I'll tell you. And I will tell you honestly because I don't want you to make a fool of yourself. And I trust him. Mm-hmm. And so I read him the beginning and he says, it's fine, you're a lunatic. And I go, okay. <laughs> and then I write the rest.
0: Well, I'm glad you do. There's a lot of people out there who are glad you do. And uh, the rest is uh, right now, Strangers at the Gate, which is out this October.
2: Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm so fond of them. And now I get to talk about these people with other people, because at the moment, I'm the only one that knows them.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that's going to change here shortly.
2: Thank you. I hope so. Thanks, Frank. It's
0: been a real pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's been lovely. Thanks very much.
0: Well, there you are, folks, Katrina McPherson, delightful person, fun to be around. I've met her a couple of different times. Uh, She is, uh, as I mentioned, the toast of every conference that she goes to, whether officially or unofficially, Uh, and I think you can see why. She has a very engaging personality, so uh, check out her work. Whether you enjoy something with a little twist of comedy or you like something a little bit more classical, uh, she's got you covered. Next month's feature episode will be John Shepard who is an interesting guy who has worked in the uh, film industry and his novel Bottom Feeders is also set uh, in that uh, sort of B-movie, B-TV movie sort of world, uh, which he's very familiar with. And so we, we caught up with him and talked to him and uh, hit him up with our flash-forward questions. <laughs> John Shepard, what city do you live in now? Hermosa Beach, California. Who's your favorite writer? It has to be
3: James M. Kane. Favorite movie? Cool Hand Luke.
0: Favorite TV show? Breaking Bad
3: and Beverly Hillbillies. It's a toss-up. Do you have a nickname? I kind of clown around that uh, my nickname is Johnny Fortnite, and that's because I can make a movie in 14 days. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> What are you working on right now?
3: I'm working on a uh, a novel uh, featuring Jack O'Shea, who's a deception
0: specialist. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing?
3: Um, I like to slow cook meat. Favorite sport? Favorite sport has to be horse racing. Your favorite musician? Clarence Gatemouth Brown.
0: Your five second advice to aspiring writers?
3: Get up early in the morning and write.
0: Where would you like to go that you've never been?
3: I'd like to see St. Petersburg, Russia.
0: What's your favorite quote?
3: My favorite quote, the harder you work, the luckier you get.
0: All right. All right, there's a snapshot of John Shepard, who you will meet uh, as his interview is our feature episode in November. Uh, our very next episode, however, will be with Debbie Mack, who writes... Uh, I think you could call them P.I. legal thrillers might be one way to one way to approach her, uh, her Sam McRae books, but uh, also just a super nice person and a tireless promoter of other authors. Uh, And I I think you're really going to enjoy uh, getting to know her. That'll be uh, released on the 23rd of October, episode 53. That's next week on Wrong Place Right Crime. Real quick, it's update. If you'll indulge me, I just want to let you know that a couple of days ago, my first Bo Compton novel, At Their Own Game, was released from Down and Out Books. This is the first in a series that uh, focuses more on the criminals than the cops. The second one in the series, In the Cut, will be out in January. At Their Own Game is about a former cop-turned-fence who gets in over his head, And In the Cut takes place against the backdrop of an outlaw motorcycle gang. Some darker reading there for you if you are interested. I'd like to thank Katrina for coming on the show, Down Out Books, for being an outstanding partner. And of course, you, the listener, as always, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate knowing that somebody is playing this in their headphones or in their car or while they're walking on the treadmill or whatever it is you do while you listen to podcasts and uh, digging on some of the things that uh, uh, we're doing here. Next episode, Debbie Mack. And Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place. It's a right crime.